Let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Kings and chapter 20. One Kings chapter 20, and we begin to read from verse 23. This is a fairly lengthy chapter, and we broke it up into two. King Ahab is facing the Syrian army, Ben-Hadad. And we read in verse 23, Then the servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods, that is the gods of Israel, supposedly, are gods of the hills. Therefore they were stronger than we, but if we fight against them in the plain, surely we will be stronger than they. So do this thing. Dismiss the kings, each one from his position, and put captains in their places. And you shall muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse, and chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain. Surely we will be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. So it was in the spring of the year that Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went out to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the children of Israel were mustered and given provisions and they went against them. Now the children of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats while the Syrians filled the countryside. Then a man of God came and spoke to the king of Israel and said, Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said, The Lord is God of the hills, but he is not God of the valleys, therefore I will deliver all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And they encamped opposite each other for seven days. So it was on the seventh day the battle was joined, and the children of Israel killed 100,000 foot soldiers of the Syrians in one day. But the rest fled to Aphek, into the city. Then a wall fell on 27,000 of the men who were left. And Ben-Harad fled and went into the city, into an inner chamber. Then his servants said to him, Look now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Please let us put sackcloth around our waists and ropes around our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. So they wore sackcloth around their waists and put ropes around their heads and came to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Ben-Hanab says, Please let me live. And he said, Is he still alive? He is my brother. Now the men were watching closely to see whether any sign of mercy would come from him. And they quickly grasped at his word and said, Your brother Ben-Hadad? So he said, Go, bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came out to him, and he had him come up into the chariot. So Ben-Hadad said to him, The cities which my father took from your father I will restore. And you may set up marketplaces for yourself in Damascus, as my father did in Samaria. Then Ahab said, I will send you away with this treaty. So he made a treaty with him and sent him away. Now, a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his neighbour by the word of the Lord, Strike me, please. And the man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, Because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, surely as soon as you depart from me, a lion shall kill you. And as soon as he left him, a lion found him and killed him. He found another man and said, Strike me, please. So the man struck him, inflicting a wound. Then the prophet departed and waited for the king by the road and disguised himself with a bandage over his eyes. Now as the king passed by, he cried out to the king and said, Your servant went out into the midst of the battle, and there a man came over and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man. If by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. While your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. Then the king of Israel said to him, So shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. And he hastened to take the bandage away from his eyes. And the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. He said to him, Thus says the Lord, because you have let slip out of your hand a man whom I appointed to utter destruction. Therefore your life shall go for his life, and your people for his people. So the king of Israel went to his house 
sullen and displeased and came to Samaria. Let's pray. Lord, you have given us your holy and infallible word to make us wise unto salvation through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, these words, together with all the other words of Scripture, are part of your revealed will to us, declaring to us your character, your ways, warning us, instructing us, provoking us unto righteousness. And Lord, we pray that as a result of what we read this night and hear this night, we may hear and receive and the word may bear fruit in our lives and righteousness may be abundant in us. Lord, we ask these mercies in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. While we were on our family holiday this past week, Caleb, our grandson, got himself entangled while we were in a country park in a bramble. It wasn't a huge bramble, but a little fellow gets tangled up with this prickly bramble. He couldn't escape. The thorns stuck in his trousers. The more he tried to struggle, he was dragged to the ground by this bramble. It scratched him and needed someone to go and help him and rescue him. Uh, he was distressed and cried a little until he was released from this wretched bramble. Sin is rather like a bramble. Sin has turned this world into a world of thorns and thistles and brambles. And there is no getting through this world without being scratched and torn. And brambles and thorns and thistles are sometimes painful and draw blood. Ahab is the king of Israel. Ahab is caught and entangled and severely scratched and wounded and the blood flows as we see his own sin. He is entangled in his own sin and it is like a bramble that tears at him and makes him bleed. He refused and he made the situation worse by his refusal. He refused the grace and the kindness of the Lord God of Israel and he ends up being justly condemned for his sin. Ahab is no child. He is a grown man. He is king over the ten tribes of Israel. But this man, grown man that he is, does not seem to recognize, does not seem to understand sin. He's not able to discern. He's the man who regarded the sin of Jeroboam as nothing. The golden bulls of Dan and Bethel, nothing. No consequence whatsoever. It seemed to him, as we look at him, it seems that he regarded good and evil as much the same. He could not discern what was pleasing to God and what was an abomination to God. But good and evil are not the same to the living God, the God of Israel. Whoever you are, whatever side you may be on, whatever reason you sin, evil is evil in the eyes of God. And we said that they have made the situation worse because he rejected the goodness and the grace of God. He just didn't seem to get the message. He didn't have the ears to hear and the eyes to see. Here was a man who was spiritually hardened in his heart and a man who was blind and seemingly deaf to the voice and the ways and the works of God. And here in, Gen in 1 Kings 20 and on into chapters 21, right to the end of this book of Kings, 21 and 22, we trace out Ahab as he continues to sell himself to do evil in God's eyes. And this chapter anticipates the words that we find in chapter 21 and verse 20, where Ahab, confronted once again by Elijah, 
is told in verse 21, Behold, I will bring calamity on you. I will take away your posterity and will cut off from Ahab every male in Israel, both bond and free. I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger and made Israel sin. He is a sad man. He cuts a sad picture of a man. I want to draw out three things from this passage this evening. The first thing is this. We see again the Lord's grace to Ahab. The Lord's repeated grace to Ahab. Now you will remember, especially if you heard the sermon on the first part of this chapter a few weeks ago. You remember Ben-Harad's arrogance. He threatened Ahab and Israel and said with regard to Samaria, there won't be enough dust left in Samaria for my followers to come and even pick up a handful. By the time I finish with you, you will be crushed. You will be removed from the face of the earth and Samaria will be reduced to rubble and to dust. And yet we found in chapter 20 and verse 13, despite all his arrogance, the man of God came to Ahab and promised Ahab deliverance. And that deliverance took place. God delivered Ahab and Israel out of the hand of Ben-Hadad. But then, in verse 22, you may remember, the Lord had said to Ahab, when spring comes next year, You'll face a new attack from the king of Syria. And this is what happened. Precisely that's where we pick it up in verse 23. The spring has come and we find there in verse 26 is the spring of the year Ben-Harad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And we are told again that they were, Israel was hopelessly outnumbered. The army of Israel is described as like two little flocks of goats in verse 27. The Syrians filled the countryside. Everywhere you looked, north, south, east and west, everywhere there were Syrians. And there was just these two little groups of Israel and their army. And confronted and outnumbered, what happens? A man of God, verse 28, came and spoke to the king of Israel and said, Thus says the Lord. Because the Syrians have said, the Lord is God of the hills, but he is not God of the valleys, therefore I will deliver all this great multitude into your hand, and you, you Ahab, and you Israel, it's plural, you shall know that I am the Lord. Now again, this is God's grace. Why does God show his grace to this man? This man has no appreciation of God's goodness. There is no indication that he responds to the first deliverance and responds with thankfulness to God. There's not a word upon his lips that indicates that he is moved to change his religion and turn away from Baal worship and to worship the living and the true God. But God does not turn his back upon him and turn his back upon Israel. Verse 29 and follows gives the outcome. Ben-Hadad is crushed. And some of his men are literally crushed. When the city walls of Aphek fall on them and destroy 27,000. In one day, 100,000 Syrian soldiers are killed in battle. Now some people question the numbers that are involved. I'm not going to enter into the debate about that. It's enough for us to know that the Lord inflicted a devastating blow and defeat on Syria. It left Ben-Hadad fleeing for his life for the second time. And he goes into hiding, into the city of Aphek, into an inner chamber. Why did the Lord show such grace to Ahab and to Israel? Well, verse 28 gives us at least two reasons. The first reason is this. The great deliverance was 
that Ahab and all Israel will know that I am the Lord. Israel, Ahab, you will know by what I do, by what you see with your own eyes in this great battle, you will know that I am the Lord. You will see my power. You will see my glory. You will see my grace to you because I am prepared still to defend Israel and to deliver you from the Syrian. I'm committed. This is my loyalty. This is my faithfulness to my covenant. You are still my people. And it was a call therefore to Ahab to repent, to recognise that God was at work. It was calling them to return to the Lord. To depart from their idols and put their faith in the Lord God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. God is putting his grace and his goodness before Ahab. What does he do? He ignores it. He climbs over it and has nothing to do with it and does not respond. But there's another reason. There in the beginning of verse 28, the Lord says, because the Syrians have said, the Lord is God of the hills, but he is not God of the valleys. God passes judgment on the Syrians. They have a bad, false theology. This is blasphemy. They are saying of the God of Israel, the living God, they're saying of him, oh, he's just like the gods of the nations. He's a God of the hills. If we go and fight in the valleys, he's not a God of the valleys, so we'll wipe them off the earth. The Syrians came up with their own false interpretation of why they lost the first battle. They said, because their gods are the gods of the hills, verse 23. We were fighting Israel in the wrong place, with the wrong men. Let's get rid of these other kings. This coalition has not worked. Let's get rid of them. Let's put other men in their place. Let's get our horses and our chariots and we'll go and fight them on the plains. Because he's not a god of the plains, he's a god of the hills. Now, do you think the Lord God of Israel is going to stand idly by when such things are being said? His reputation is at stake. His glory is at stake. His name is being blasphemed by the Syrians. Do you think he will allow the nations to think of him in that kind of pagan way? No, he will arise and defend his own honour and his own glory. And that is what we find. The man of God says, Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said, The Lord is God of the hills, but he's not God of the valleys. Therefore I will deliver you. I will show them. And I will show you by the way I deal with them and by the way I deliver you from them. I will show you that I am the Lord God Almighty. This is God then impressing his sovereign power and his authority and showing who is the true God. And this is the second time that this has been impressed upon Ahab. Ahab has not done anything to turn back to God. He's not sought God's face. Even though God said spring will come, Ahab the second time, and Ben-Hadad will come against you another time. But the amazing thing is that the man of God comes and God delivers Israel anyway. Sheer grace. Sheer grace. And it's all lost on wicked Ahab. It's all lost on him. <coughs> but before we move on and think to ourselves, well, this hasn't got a great deal to teach us, has it? But think a moment. Could we? Could we, to some degree or other, adopt, imbibe the false theology of the Syrians and dishonour our God? How, you ask? What's in your mind? Do we place limits on what we think God can or what we might expect God to do? Israel was hopelessly outnumbered. Syria expected to plunder them at will. The Lord God dealt with both situations in one day 
and in one deliverance and showed himself to be the Lord, the true God. We are small in number. Even if this place was full, we are still small in number in this town, in this neighbourhood, certainly in this nation. We are outnumbered. There are people in our nation who would gladly do away with the Christian faith. They want to rewrite history and pretend that these things are just myths and legends and not true. But is there not a very real danger, because we are small, that we limit God and we say, in effect, well, we don't expect God to do very much because we are a small church. So we don't expect God to work very much in us or through us. And we may begin to think that, well, he's a God who can do this in other places and in other parts of the world. He's done this in other times in history. But we don't think he could really revive his work in the midst of the years. We don't really think that he could fill this place with overflowing with men and women who love and worship the Lord Jesus Christ. But you see, if we begin to think like that, we've imbibed an element of this rotten Syrian theology. He's a God of the hills, but he's not a God of the valleys. There is no nation on the face of this earth where God does not rule. There is nothing anywhere in heaven or on earth or under the earth, there is nothing and no realm where God is not sovereign. There is nothing beyond his power. Does God no longer work in this nation? Does God no longer work in this town, in this church? What would it be for him to fill this place? On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people were added to the church. They'd fill this to overflow. You need 50 places of this size to house 3,000 people. He did that in one day. In one day he destroyed 100,000 soldiers who were set on destroying the nation of Israel. Brethren, sisters, we need to examine carefully our expectations and our prayers and our desires lest we have imbibed this rotten Syrian theology. You see, we're fallen creatures still. And fallen creatures tend to have wrong and distorted views of God. And therefore we need to realise who this God is and realise his glory and his majesty and his power and his grace and his love and what he is able to do and not impose limits upon him. Well, we've seen then the Lord's repeated grace to Ahab. But then the story becomes sad because secondly we read of Ahab's fatal compromise. Verses 31 to 34. Look how Ahab handles this situation. The Lord has destroyed the army of the Syrians. He's taken out another 27,000 men in Aphek. Ben-Hadad is in hiding in an inner chamber somewhere in this city of Aphek. And what do we find Ahab doing? How does he handle this humiliated Ben-Hadad? His words are recorded in verse 32, 33 and 34. In verse 32 we read, he asks, is he still alive? He's my brother. And then in verse 33 he says, go, bring him. And he even has him ride in Ahab's chariot, in the royal chariot. And then in verse 34, Ahab sends him away after they've agreed a treaty which will be favourable to Ahab. You remember the blustering arrogance of Ben-Hadad, don't you? And what is he now? He's, re- he's limited He's reduced to crying to Ahab for mercy. Now in the ancient Near East, if you had been defeated in the way that Ben-Hadad had been defeated, you would have expected to die. Even if you got into hiding, once you'd be found, you would die. 
So he seeks advice of a few remaining counsellors. How can I save my own skin? Well, they say, dress up in sackcloth and ropes, symbols of submission, and we'll go and test the waters. We'll go and see how, ben, how Ahab responds. Perhaps he will spare your life. Ahab had him. He had him effectively a prisoner in his own hands. And yet, his first words are, oh, he's my brother. He's my brother. This is the man whose city he threatened to reduce to dust and rubble. This is the man with true pagan notions of God. Oh, he's the God only of the hills. He's not the God of the valleys. And he meets with Ben-Hadab. He has him ride in his chariot. He treats him not even like a friend, but family. You're my brother. And he sends him back to Damascus, alive, free, having obtained the treaty. The returned cities that Ben-Hadab had taken from his father Omri, they're given back to him, and he has training rights now in Damascus. Very favourable to Ahab. Damascus is one of the richest training, on the richest training routes in the Middle East. And Ahab has a hand in that. He's going to be wealthy. Israel is going to profit from all of this. And it may well be, it may well be that what Ahab was thinking of, he was thinking of what lay north of Damascus. The great empire of Assyria that was beginning to emerge. It would be very handy to have a buffer state between Assyria and Israel. So if he was in good relations with Syria, then that would help him to stand against the might of Assyria. But what is missing from here? This is a fatal compromise. Ahab has not consulted any prophet. He's not tried to find out what God's will is from the word. He's acted as a pragmatic man of the world, which is what he basically is. And he's hedging his bets, possibly against the threat of Assyria. He's not trusting in God to deliver Israel. If Assyria should come against him, hasn't the Lord delivered the Syrians twice from his hand and they've been hopelessly outnumbered? But he hasn't learned anything from that. No, what he's done is to enter into this treaty and he's compromised his position. He's not put his trust in God. He's putting his trust in a man. He's come into league and into some kind of treaty now with Ben-Hadad and he's let him off. He's set him free. Psalm 146 and verse 3 tells us Do not put your trust in princes nor in the Son of Man in whom is no help. His spirit departs and returns to the earth. Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 17 and verses 5 and 6 tells us Cursed is the man who puts his trust in man, and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. Ahab is that man. He's departed from the Lord, and he's putting his trust in men. He says, Jeremiah says, he's like a shrub in the desert. He does not see when good comes. That describes Ahab to a T. This man doesn't see the goodness of God. His theology is no better than the Syrians. Their God of the hills and God of the valleys theology. He relies upon man. And because he relies upon man and his own wisdom and his own counsel and his counsellors who he has in his court, he fatally compromises. This man is blind to the goodness and kindness of God and puts his trust in a man and lets him go scot-free. Are there times, are there situations, are there circumstances where you are tempted to forget the Lord your God and rely far too much on other people 
and turn to them first before you turn to your God and seek refuge and help from him and from his word? Have you learned, are you learning more and more to rely upon the Lord your God, the care of your heavenly Father, who says that you are more important to him than the sparrows, and he sees the sparrows that fall to the ground, you're of more value to him than they are? Have you learned, are you learning to rely upon the sufficiency of his promises and the riches of his grace in Jesus Christ? Are you like Paul, able to say increasingly, I have learned to be content in whatever situation I am, whether I have little or whether I have an abundance? Are you learning like David and able to say like David in Psalm 127, I think it is, that he's like a weaned child with his mother, content. person you see who trusts not in God who trusts in man, trusts in himself cannot see when good comes and cannot and will not put his trust or her trust in God and you end up fatally compromising like Ahab but then there is a third thing it becomes even sadder we see now the Lord's righteous condemnation of Ahab in the last section from verses 35 to 43. It is put very tersely by the man of God in verse 42. Notice again, a man of God, a prophet, is involved. Ahab can't get away from these men of God. They hound him, they pursue him at every turn. It doesn't seem to be the same one who spoke to him on the first, with regard to the first deliverance, but it's described as a certain man of the sons of the prophets, verse 35. Not named, but this man of God says to Ahab, thus says the Lord, always a sure indication that this is a true prophet, because you have let slip out of your hand a man whom I appointed to utter destruction, therefore your life shall go for his life and your people for his people. These are the words of God's righteous judgment and condemnation of Ahab, his conduct, his behaviour, his words and his whole life. The Lord says to him, Ahab, you have let out of your hand a man whom I had appointed to utter destruction. Literally, a man of my destruction. Ahab, you've let the Lord's prisoner go. Twice I've delivered him into your hand, and you have let him go and sent him back alive to Damascus. Ahab, you've spared the Lord's enemy, an enemy of Israel. One who was bent on total destruction of Israel. One who is a pagan. One who is an idolater. One who has blasphemed my name. You've let him go. Does that remind you of something else in the, in the Old Testament? We covered it several years ago. 1 Samuel chapter 15. When Samuel comes to Saul. And basically says, why have you spared Agag? What's all this bleating of the sheep that I hear and these oxen that are lowing? These and Agag were devoted to destruction and you have let them live. And Ahab has done precisely the same thing. Ahab has not displayed that Joshua-like zeal that removed the nations, the wicked nations of Canaan because of their idolatry, because of their immorality and their false religion. There is no David like jealousy and zeal. Do you remember when David went out to fight Goliath the Philistine? I come to you, he said, in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. You are an uncircumcised Philistine. There's nothing of that in Ahab. Oh, he's my brother. He's my brother. 
And that righteous condemnation of God by Ahab is made even more vivid. Because he ends up condemning himself. There's a strange incident in verses 35 to 38. One of the sons of the prophets commands his neighbour, perhaps another prophet, in God's name to wound him, to inflict a wound upon him, to hack him with a sword and draw blood. And that man refuses. It's a command of the Lord, notice. And that man refuses. And he dies for his disobedience to the Lord. A lion kills him. You turn to 1 Kings 13, you find a similar situation where a disobedient prophet is killed by a lion. He speaks to a second man, a second prophet. Strike me! Wound me! And that man does as the Lord commands. And this certain man of the sons of the prophets then disguises himself, puts a bandage over his eyes and then he waits for the king to return from the scene of battle. If the king is feeling rather pleased with himself and what he has accomplished and his strategy, he's going to be a very disappointed man very quickly. The man of God acted out of power. Again, that reminds us of what David endured at the hands of Nathan. Nathan came and told him a parable. And David then condemned the man for his wickedness, for his injustice. Well, in this parable, it's a different parable, in this parable, a Syrian prisoner has been taken and has been given to an Israelite to be guarded. But that Israelite soldier has not been a very good guard. He's let the Syrian prisoner escape. But there were terms. He was told it will be your life for his life if you let him go or he escapes or else you will have to pay a talent of silver. Now that may not mean a great deal to us. It doesn't mean a great deal to us. But it was approximately a hundred times the price of a slave. No Israeli, Israelite soldier would be able to afford that sort of money as a ransom for his own life. And what does Ahab do? Well, verse 40, so shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. It's your fault, man. You let him go. You must accept the punishment. And then he removes the bandage from his eyes. And a stunned Ahab realises it's a man of God. It's a man of God. He just could not escape from the Lord and from his words. And then those words in verse 42. The righteous judgment. You've let slip out of your hand a man whom I appointed to utter destruction. Therefore your life shall be, shall go for his life and your people for his people. It will be destruction for Ahab and his house and for the nation of Israel. Ahab has brought God's righteous judgment down upon himself and upon the nation. When God has repeatedly shown his grace to this man. And what is his response? He goes back home to Samaria, sullen and displeased, like a spoilt child. He does not accept the rebuke of God. There's no cry of distress. There's no cry for mercy. There's no cry for forgiveness. Lord, I have sinned against you. I have offended you. I have ignored your grace. There's none of that. There's only a deep-seated rage and resentment of the prophet. Ahab was a man who never faced up to himself and to his own sin. He always blamed others. Elijah, you're the troubler of Israel. But his problem wasn't with Elijah. His problem was with God. 
And he goes home sullen and displeased. And in that state and condition he sets his heart upon Naboth's vineyard. And when he can't have Naboth's vineyard, he's sullen again. Spoilt brat. You see how badly sin scratched, wounded and drew blood in Ahab. He's entangled by this bramble, by sin. The thorns and briars have entrapped him. Evil is evil and Ahab continues in his wickedness. And he ends up bringing disaster upon himself and upon the whole nation of Israel because of his sin. Because of his sin. Even though God was gracious to him on two key occasions and delivered him when he was hopelessly outnumbered. But there is no indication anywhere in this chapter that Ahab was moved to return in any way, shape or form to God and to seek his face and to cry to him for mercy. And there are important lessons for every one of us to learn here. The first is this. See where Ahab's sin takes him. It takes him away from God and brings him under divine judgment. Can you imagine a worse state than this? To be under the judgment, under the curse of God. Despite the grace of God to him. He goes deeper and deeper into trouble and brings judgment upon himself. He knows the Lord, not now in blessing and in deliverance, but he will know the Lord and he will know God's anger and he will know him in judgment. Many a modern man or woman reading this account will tell you, well, Ahab, of course, when he dealt with Ben-Hadad in the way that he did, he was magnanimous. An admirable kindness and generosity. Enlightened restraint. Yet what he did, according to God, was blatant disobedience to the revealed will of God. And he did it in the face of astonishing grace. And there is a warning there, surely. There's someone here tonight who is not a Christian. The grace of God is being set before you. The grace of God is constantly set before you from this pulpit. And the grace of God may be given to you and shown to you in many other ways in your home. What are you saying to the grace of God? Ahab saw the grace of God. Christ is preached to you. But will you refuse him? Will you reject him? And will you then take further steps away from God and turn away from God and go on in your sin, in your more sin and even more sin and bring down the judgment of God upon your own head? That is a terrible thing to do. That is a dangerous thing to do. Look what happened to Ahab. Look what happened in the book of Revelation when the judgment of God came upon those who had rejected God and rejected Christ. We read of it earlier in Revelation chapter 16. That will be your state. That will be your condition outside of Jesus Christ. And grace is being offered to you now, even though you may be saying in your heart, I don't want it. But grace is being offered. The forgiveness of sins is being offered. God was gracious to a man like Ahab, who was a wicked man, the most wicked king who ever sat upon the throne of Israel, who indulged in Baal worship. And though he saw grace after grace after grace, he refused it. I plead with you, do not refuse the grace and the mercy of God. Don't bring the judgment of God down upon yourself. 
but you'll spend an eternity in hell with a bad conscience knowing that you rejected God's love and God's kindness in Christ. But there's another lesson to learn. And here, I think it is a warning even to those of us who profess to be the people of God. Someone who was probably a prophet died because of their disobedience to the Lord. Now God doesn't bring death by lines as a judgment. But if we disobey the word of God, what happens? It's not something of no consequence. Our faith and our comfort will be slowly eaten away and eroded away. There is a verse in the Old Testament that says that sometimes when we begin to wander away from God we become disobedient to his word. He will give us the desires of our heart. He'll let us go. But he will send leanness to our souls. A chastening. A judgment. A prophet here dies for disobedience. You say, well that's Old Testament. Is it? My Bible says in 1 Corinthians 11 that there were some people dying in Corinth because of their way they treated the Lord's Supper in the church. They were becoming sick and dying. Therefore we need to take heed and to ensure that we seek not to resist and to disobey the word of God. A prophet dies for disobedience. Well, if a prophet dies for disobedience, what will happen to Ahab? And you do not want to become like Ahab, I am sure. This man was resentful. Let us therefore be careful that we do not adopt that hardening of heart to the word of the Lord. But the whole tenor of this message, the whole tenor of this passage is what I will call a no, not this way, not Ahab's way kind of passage. We are to learn as we see where sin takes us. We are to learn that is not the way for us to go. Someone has rightly said that if you continue in sin, you will add to your troubles, you will subtract from your energy and you will multiply your difficulties. That's what happened to Ahab. And I say it's a no, not in that way kind of passage. Ahab comes to know the Lord in judgment. What this passage highlights for us is our need for the grace of God in Jesus Christ. If we are to live unto God, it cannot be in our own strength. It can only be by the grace of God. It can only be as a consequence of our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Apart from him, the judgment of God would be our lot. And it would be a righteous judgment. And let us remind ourselves that little sins will damn us as much as great sins. Let us not imagine that pardon is easy because we haven't committed the same kinds of sins as, say, Ahab has. Outside of Jesus Christ, there is no shelter from God's just anger and indignation and wrath. There is no shelter ultimately from hell itself. We see Ahab sold himself to do sin. When Jesus Christ came into this world, he laid down his life for his sheep. His love is displayed in the cross. His love is displayed there as he goes to Calvary and lays down his life for us. He is a far greater and a far better king, a perfect king. He is not like Ahab. And the way that we should go is the way of Christ. And we must go to Christ 
and go to him for continued pardon and cleansing from all of our sins. And as we grasp, as we were seeking to do this morning, some of the wonders of his grace and what he was willing to endure in order to save us from our sins. It is as we gaze upon Christ and as we realise what his work was there on the cross to deliver us from the power and from the guilt and from the curse of sin. As we begin to see the love of God the Father and the power of the Spirit of God it is then that we begin to see that this great love of God displayed in Jesus Christ That is what compels us then to live lives that are pleasing to God, to live holy lives, not to go in the way of Ahab, but to turn away from that. Driven by, motivated by the grace of God that flows to us in Jesus Christ. It is that grace that constrains us to live unto God and to turn away from our sins. This chapter is a sad chapter. It's a devastating chapter. But it's not the only chapter that's in the Bible. The grace of God shines even brighter. Where sin abounds, what did Paul say? Grace abounds all the more. That's our gospel. That's what we believe. That's our hope. That's our only confidence. Grace abounds. Brethren, let us not spurn the grace of God. God deliver us from the attitude they have and grant us grace then to respond to the kindness, the love and the faithfulness of our God. We don't deserve it, but he is gracious. Let us then seek to live to his praise and to his glory. Amen. Lord, we pray that you would turn us more and more away from our sin and more and more unto Jesus Christ and as we see him and gaze upon him in his beauty and in his glory as we gaze upon him in all his sufferings and his death for us so may our hearts be constrained to love him and to serve him to take up our cross and to follow him O Lord we do pray turn us away from the sin of Ahab we may may not compromise as he did we may not disobey as he did seeing him and what happened to him we may rather flee unto Christ and live a life that is pleasing unto you in the power of your spirit as a consequence of the grace that has been so richly lavished upon us hear us then we pray for his sake Amen Amen